in this day and age, maybe the word we need most to wield is the word no. It is the most powerful word in the language. Who better to guide us on why to say no, when to say no, and how to say no than the man who made his reputation getting to yes? But because it is so powerful, it is also potentially the most destructive. But if we can make it a positive word, then we can transform our lives like Michelangelo did 500 years ago. Yes, Michelangelo turns out to have been a master of the art of saying no. Just in time to improve our lives for the new year, we'll explore Michelangelo's No to the Pope, one of the most impassioned, effective no's you will ever hear in service of a greater yes. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Joining me now on Wavemaker Conversations for breaking news from 500 years ago, but it's still as relevant today as it ever was, is William Urey. William, welcome back to Wavemaker Conversations. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Michael. And so for those of you who don't know William Urey, initially got on the map in a big way by co-authoring the book Getting to Yes, a classic book on negotiation. From there, it was Getting Past No. Then it was The Power of a Positive No, which is the one I keep on referring to in my own life. And now his latest, Getting to Yes with Yourself, and is it other worthy adversaries or other worthy opponents? Other worthy opponents could be either. (laughs) We're all our own worthiest opponent or adversary. We're all our own worthiest opponent or adversary, except in this case, which I discovered on the wonderful site brain pickings of Michelangelo, the Italian Renaissance sculptor, painter, poet, architect, and engineer. And I'm going to quote directly from this. This is... I I immediately shared this story with our guest, William Urey, because it was one of the most amazing examples I'd ever come across and most passionate examples of a positive no. And then, William, I'm going to have you explain that. So I'm going to read directly just the way Maria Popova, who writes this site, Brain Pickings, the way she framed it, Italian Renaissance sculptor Michelangelo is celebrated as one of the greatest and most influential artists of all time. In 1505... 30-year-old Michelangelo was commissioned to build a tomb for the newly elected Pope Julius II in Rome. It was an arduous process marred by constant interruption and interference by the Pope, a bona fide micromanager. So here is how Michelangelo responds. He writes to the Pope's head architect, defending his decision to leave Rome and do the work far away from the Pope in the city of Florence. And William Urey, you pick up the letter from there shared by Brain Pickings from the book, Poems and Letters, Selections with the 1550 Vasari Life. So this is what Michelangelo writes. If I stayed in Rome, my own tomb would be made before the popes. And this was why I left so suddenly. He's starting with the why, it's so important. He says, now you write to me on the Pope's behalf, so you can read the Pope this. Let his holiness understand that I am more willing than ever to carry on with the work. And if he wants the tomb, come what may, he shouldn't be bothered about where I work on it, provided that at the end of the five years we agreed upon, it is set up in St. Peter's, wherever he likes, and that it is something beautiful, as I promised it will be, for I am sure that if it's completed, there will be nothing like it in the world. 
And then our author, Maria Popova, writes, Michelangelo makes an impassioned, even indignant case for what we now call remote work half a millennium before cars and commuter rail and Skype. And William Murray, you continue with Michelangelo's words. I'll continue with his positive no. He writes, Now, if His Holiness wants to go on with it, he should place the deposit for me here in Florence, and I'll write to tell him where. And I have many marbles on order in Carrara, which I shall have brought here along with those I have in Rome. Even if it meant a serious loss to me, I shouldn't mind so long as I could do the work here, and I would forward the finished pieces one by one so that His Holiness would enjoy them just as much as if I were working in Rome, or even more, because he would just see the finished pieces without having any other bother. For the money and for the work, I shall pledge myself as His Holiness desires and give him whatever security he requires here in Florence. Whatever it is, I'll give him that security before all Florence. Enough. So, William Urey, tell me why this letter to the Pope's architect from Michelangelo is so important and what we can all learn from it. In this day and age, maybe the word we need most to wield is the word no. It is the most powerful word in the language, but because it is so powerful... It is also potentially the most destructive. But if we can make it a positive word, then we can transform our lives like Michelangelo did 500 years ago. A positive no is very simple. It has a very simple structure. It's a no that paradoxically begins with a yes. In this case, Michelangelo, his yes is really clear. It's his, his creative integrity the beauty that he envisions. He's making that very clear. This is why he's leaving. This is the why. This is what he's standing up for. So it shines through this letter. Then the second part of the no is the no itself, which is very calm, very respectful, very matter-of-fact, not antagonistic, not rejecting. It's simply in service of that larger yes, which in this case is his creative integrity. So he's saying, for the sake of what I have to deliver, the beauty I'm going to deliver, I need to be able to say no to staying in Rome. I'm going to be in Florence. And then a positive no ends not on the no, but on a yes, which is a yes to relationship, a proposal back to the other side. So it takes that structure of a yes, no, yes. And in this case, the yes on the other side of the no is a proposal. And he says, I will commit in front of all of Florence that this will be delivered to you, you will like it, this will be the greatest thing I can give you. And so his no basically starts with a yes, which is very strong, and ends with a very strong yes. And that's why it's such a beautiful, like a pearl of a positive no that can serve to enlighten us 500 years later. It's really incredible. And and as we hear it, and one, one would think... You know, it's a scary thing to write a letter like that to the man in charge of architecture uh, at the Vatican. And that's a really, that takes a lot of courage. And yet it's, it's an empowering letter for us all to read, correct? Absolutely. And exactly. And we, oftentimes we have to say no to people who have a lot of power. And it does take that courage. But if we can do it in a positive way, where 
we draw on our own strength. And what is his strength? His strength is the life force that flows through Michelangelo that wants to express itself in this beauty. So he roots it. It's like a tree. These are the roots of the tree. And then the, the no itself then coming out of strong roots is like the strong trunk of a tree that can be strong in dealing with the other side, but in a positive, respectful way. There's not one word of anger or negativity in this. And then what that allows then is the branches, which is the yes on the other side, the branches to reach out. He reaches out and, and has a proposal. He reaches out to the Pope's architect. He has a message. He reaches out to the Pope, who's the most powerful person there in his surroundings. So he's able to say no to an extremely powerful authority, but in a way that maintains his own integrity. And it's interesting that you said there was no antagonism there, not a word of, was that the correct word did you use? Right, I did. There was not a word of antagonism there, which is interesting because on first read, it's such an impassioned note that it takes you back and you realize the greatest amount of passion there is with that internal yes. It was in expressing his needs, and it wasn't antagonistic at all. It was just, and sometimes we confuse the two, don't we? Have you been in situations where people give an impassioned plea, and it is received or taken as something antagonistic when it wasn't meant to be that? Absolutely, all the time. As a matter of fact, William Urey just came back from the South American nation of Colombia, where he has been a mediator in the continent's longest-running war. In a moment, what Michelangelo's no to the Pope can teach us about conflict resolution. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder, picking up the conversation about Michelangelo's positive no to the Pope and how saying no the right way for the right reasons can pave the way for a better yes than you might have imagined. My guest is William Urey, who, among other things, is co-founder of the Harvard Program on Negotiation. I just come back from Colombia, where I'm working on the, with the government on the ending the civil war there, and I work in conflict situations, so I see that passion often gets directed in a negative way. And what Michelangelo teaches us here is that keep the passion, because passion essentially is a yes. So really focus on that yes. And that's what a positive no does, is it parses the no into these three elements, the yes, the no, and the yes, so that you can direct your passion towards the yes, so it doesn't leak into the no. And then you can keep the no very matter-of-fact. I'm moving to Florence. There's no, it's just very matter-of-fact. It's calm, it's respectful. There's no antagonism. There's no edge to it. And then you can put similar positivity into reaching out to say, let's have a relationship. Let's do this in a good way. I will give you the security that you need. I will address your basic needs. Your basic interests will be met. I will give you that assurance. That's the yes on the other side of the no. So it's incredible because he could have delivered this same message. And if he hadn't delivered it quite this way, he could have said, uh, tell the Pope I am out of here. I can't take his micromanaging anymore. If he wants something good, I've got to do it away as far away from him as I can get. That wouldn't have worked as well. 
that would have been the end of the project, and we wouldn't be we wouldn't we wouldn't be seeing the Sistine Chapel. We wouldn't be seeing this beautiful tomb, all these sculptures. In other words, how the cost of negative nose is huge. I mean, if you look around the world today, all destructive conflict. What's what's the root message? Even like terrorism, what's the root message? It's a no. It's a destructive no. And we can see what destruction it wreaks in our world from, you know, from family feuds to broken marriages to labor management to broken deals and so on. So if we can learn, as Michelangelo learned from this, you know, not just a great architect, but obviously just a great, you know, wise human being who's dealing with, you know, how do I do this? How, how do I contribute what I need to contribute to the world, given the fact that I have to deal with micromanagers and, 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 and asymmetrical power? He's able to do it through a positive no. Now, let me ask you, let's bring it up now 500 years later to today. So you mentioned Columbia. Give me an example of something that you've experienced and maybe you've even encouraged in Columbia that has helped that process along, move a little farther along to maybe ending that civil war? Well, yeah, so the background is, you know, there's, this is the longest-running war in this hemisphere. It's actually the only major war in this hemisphere. It's the last one. It's been going for over 50 years. There's over 300,000 dead, they say, and 7 million refugees. It's, the scale is immense. And four years ago, when I was asked by the president to come in, you know, people thought there wasn't a hoot's chance in hell of actually ending such a protracted, complicated war with narco-trafficking and whatever. question is, how do you say no to war? And you know, you have to root yourself first in what's the underlying yes, which is a yes to peace. You know, it's a, it's a yes to peace. And, uh, and then how do you begin what began was the secret phase of talks with the guerrillas, which was not at all easy to try and locate them in the jungle and find a, a safe place to actually have a conversation. There was a secret phase, and now there's been this public phase dealing with major issues around land reform, political participation, transitional justice. But I'm happy to say, having just come back from there, that I believe the process has now reached a tipping point where within uh, six months, the odds are better than even that we will see an agreement that ends this longest-running war in the hemisphere and will send a, a positive signal. And that won't be the end of the work, of course. That will simply end the fighting but then you and, and set up a structure. But then... No, it, it will take, as in any conflict, it will take a lot of work afterwards to make it work. Let me ask you, does a sentence or a presentation from either side, something specific that you can share without a name attached necessarily, but something from the rebels to the government or vice versa, is there something that sticks in your head that said, oh my, this was such a great positive no, this helped steer the process in the right direction? Is there anything you can quote for me? Well, I think the president, President Santos, really challenged the FARC, the guerrilla force, by saying, look, I am willing to work for peace here, but the one red line, <laughs> the one no here is you're going to have to agree to demobilize and disarm. And then the yes on the other side is if you do that, 
you'll be able to enter politics and try and pursue your your interests, your your cause through nonviolent democratic means. So he offered them a positive no for the sake of peace, disarm, and we will set up a structure where you can safely pursue through democracy the yes on the other side. That's basically the offer he made and that he's kept and that we are now negotiating. And quickly, the positive no from the rebel side? And the positive no from the rebel side was basically, okay, (laughs) yes, but the no is we can only do this if, in fact, you know, there is a level playing field uh, for politics. And if, if the security, our security and the security of our people is safeguarded. And that's the challenge that they're now trying to, to solve is how to give them that security, how to give them that framework, how to deal with it uh, in a way that they can come back and pursue politics democratically rather than through violence. Why does it take 50 years for two adversaries to finally exchange positive no's? Good question. (laughs) And, you know, negotiation is extremely hard work. There's probably no harder work that human beings have to do because it means it's so so much easier to fight, actually, because things are, you know, very much, you know, cut and dried. You You know, you've got your enemy. Uh, when it comes to negotiation, you actually have to listen to things you don't want to hear. You have to forgive things. You have to look for creative solutions. You have to make compromises. It's exceedingly, exceedingly difficult uh, for human beings to do that. But it's obviously vital to the, to the future of Colombia and to the, to the next generation. So, and I'm glad to say that they're doing it, and I'm hopeful that they will actually succeed. Last five minutes, let's move to Jerusalem, where there's been another escalation in violence. And I know you have a a, a very important uh, project, Abraham's Path, which enables people to take walking tours of the actual path that the Bible says Abraham walked. And it enables you to experience the people who live along that path, who are people of the three major faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and get to experience those people where they live and to experience their hospitality. And and you have designed this as a way to foster peace in that region. So I want to give you a quote on a seemingly unrelated topic and then ask you about Jerusalem today. And we'll weave in the positive note too. The quote comes from a series I'm doing right now with the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Faye Vincent. And he shared with me what he considers the most brilliant answer he's ever gotten to a question in his entire life. He asked the Hall of Fame pitcher, Warren Spahn, who taught you how to pitch? And the way Vincent relates the story to me, Spahn looked at him in almost a patronizing way, as if The answer is obvious. And his answer to who taught you how to pitch, Warren Spahn replied, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. And Vincent's response to that was, of course, of course, you learn through experience. Who teaches anybody anything? And so on the peace front, who teaches people how to make peace? Is it you a mediator or do you have to experience peace with the other side and that sort of triggered a cascade of thoughts on my part which is the palestinians and the israelis are getting farther and farther away from ever experiencing 
peaceful coexistence with each other, who can make peace between the Palestinians and Israelis right now with the situation escalating in Jerusalem? Well, in the end, it's really, you know, not an easy question, but in the end, in all of these conflicts, the oldest human heritage for dealing with conflicts uh, that goes back to, you know, our time as hunter and gatherers is to see the conflict not just as two-sided. It's not just Israelis versus Palestinians. There's the entire community of people surrounding them. Uh, there's the community of people within Israel, within uh, the Palestinian community, within Palestine. But there's also the surrounding neighbors, friends, bystanders, including, you know, people here in the United States and so on. And that's what I call the third side. And effectively, what happens is the, the surrounding community serves as a kind of uh, container or cauldron within which the conflict can be transformed from a violent form to a nonviolent form. And so what that requires is, I mean, there is a learning process. You're talking about, you know, the, the, how did the, the pitcher learn how to pitch? The hitters taught him that you start to see your adversary as your partner, as someone who's helping you learn and teach what you need to learn. And what's being learned in that conflict, as in all conflicts around the world, is that there is no way that one side can win unilaterally, purely at the expense of the other. If you take a win-lose approach towards it, as they are now doing, inevitably, long-term, everyone loses. It's lose-lose and lose for the surrounding community. And the, the secret is to see if you can find a way to change the game from a lose-lose game to a win-win game, to a game where everyone can get at least their irreducible needs met. And that's what we've seen in other places like South Africa, Northern Ireland, other conflicts which people thought were impossible. Colombia is another example. And that's the key. And to get there, it requires the voices of the community inside, people who are Israelis, Palestinians, but it also requires the voices of people around the world to say, enough is enough. <laughs> We've got to find a better way. We've got to change the game somehow. And that's the key challenge. It's not at all easy, but that's the only way I can see forward. And so now bringing it full circle to a lighter note, although creativity, there's a lot at stake there. Uh, I finish with the brain pickings piece on Michelangelo. And again, the author Maria, Maria Popova uh, summarized it saying, although the project, that project of the tomb was scheduled to last five years, Michelangelo labored at it for four decades and never completed the tomb to his satisfaction. No doubt in large part due to the Pope's unrelenting meddling. Sometimes it's just out of your control. But as is often the case in creative culture, a small side project assigned to him shortly after the original tomb commission ended up becoming Michelangelo's most timeless legacy and one of the greatest works of art ever created, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Incredible that... <laughs> The power of that positive no, while it didn't lead to the ultimate result he wanted, still ended up paving the way for something even greater. That's it. That's it. Life is unpredictable, but by staying in the game with his positive no, keeping that relationship with the Pope going, he was able to contribute perhaps the greatest artistic masterpiece ever produced on this planet. William Urey, 
author of the latest, Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents, thank you for joining me again on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash Wavemaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.